Software Engineering Radio Episode 47, Interview with Grady Booch. Welcome, listeners, to this new episode of Software Engineering Radio. In this episode, we have an interview with Grady Booch. I think uh, I'm not going to introduce him. Grady should probably do that himself. So, Grady, welcome to the show. We appreciate it very much that you take the time for talking to us. So, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Glad to do so, and thanks for having me here. It's uh, really remarkable what mediums exist these days, because my travel is limited, although it's coming back now that I've uh, recovered from my surgery, and the number of uh, radio interviews, uh, video interviews, and videotapes and things that I've made has really been able to expand my reach. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, gosh, how would I describe myself? Uh, you know, if I hadn't discovered software, I probably would have been an itinerant musician or a priest, but <laughs> that's probably a topic for another discussion and another radio program. Yeah. But in, in the software world, my passion has always been trying to understand and help individuals and organizations build software better, build better software better in some ways. As uh, the artist Drew has said, our civilization runs on software. Mm-hmm. And it, as Paul Levy, the founder of Rational, once said, in some ways, therefore, software is the most important economy because it creates opportunities for new businesses. It creates uh, uh, means of economizing businesses. It creates ways that individuals and companies and even nations and civilizations can connect with one another. So this is a very exciting place to be, and it's been you know, my professional life since really the very beginning. Obviously, people probably know that you've been involved quite a bit with UML and some of the process stuff and object-oriented analysis and design. But um, And we'll, we'll cover or get back to some of these topics later. But I'd like to start with uh, the architecture handbook you're working on. I think this is a really fascinating topic. Well, thanks. Yeah, this is something that I was inspired to do based upon some early work that Bruce Anderson had done. Bruce uh, was and still is at IBM, mm-hmm. and about a decade ago, he uh, ran some workshops at Uppsala on trying to build a handbook of software architectural patterns. In fact, I still have the, the workshop proceedings from that. At that time, there was a fascinating movement going on in, the, in that field. Um, object-oriented stuff was still percolating. We had the method wars. There were lots of interesting things going on in the language space. And I think the community as a whole was just coming to grips with what it meant to use these new object-oriented languages and methods themselves. And that was also the time that the idea of patterns was beginning to emerge. Um, patterns, in my mind, software patterns, are perhaps one of the most important uh, new developments in software engineering in the last decade or two, mm-hmm. because they're consistent with the notion of raising our levels of abstraction, and patterns give us a means of uh, of naming things, naming structures that are a higher level than just individual lines of code themselves. So at that time frame, you had the idea of patterns percolating. You had people building larger and larger systems. We as an industry were beginning to explore what kinds of uh, structures for web-centric systems made sense. And 
also around that time, I was doing a lot of work as an architect, as an architectural mentor for some really large projects. And my work tends to span beyond the traditional IBM business of enterprise things, but mm-hmm. tend to work in real time and, and classified systems and you name it. And I've sort of been in those, in those places. And so it occurred to me there is a real gap in our knowledge in, in the, the industry in terms of really what architecture is all about. Now, Philippe Christian and the folks at the SEI uh, have, have done some really fascinating work in this space, but there haven't been a lot of empirical studies for what, what reality is out there. So rather than you know, writing yet another architecture book, of mm-hmm. which there are many fine ones, I decided to approach the problem in a different way and go a little bit more inductive. And so my project was set out to look at 100 different systems. The cho- reason I chose that number, it just sounded like a right number. <laughs> if we had been you know, born with seven fingers each, we probably would have chosen some other number. Yeah, 42, for example. <laughs> and I wanted to look at systems that, that crossed the boundaries of, of various different kinds of genres of domains as well as were spread around the world to get an idea of, uh, to, to sort of solve the following problem. I wanted to document the architecture of those systems. I wanted to explore what are the ways and what are the issues of what one needs to document. And then having done so uh, in trying to do some cross-domain studies to see if I can infer the dozen or so architectural patterns that shape every system that exists. Mm-hmm. So this is an effort I've been working on for three, four years now. I probably have three, four years more to go mm-hmm. uh, because there's just a lot of research to be done. Yeah. So is the book is probably going to be three books just like Knuth, I guess. <laughs> But, <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, Don's fourth book is still still in the mix. <laughs> uh, they tell me at Pearson that I'm starting to get a reputation like, uh, like Dr. Knuth in terms of how long it takes me to write a book. <laughs> We think it'll be one book, albeit a very large book. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's not going to be a classical patterns book. It will contain those case studies you're looking at these days. That's correct. Uh, the classic uh, patterns books like, you know, the design patterns book and such are more so a catalog of patterns where mm-hmm. I'm trying to provide a catalog of architectures from which I'll extract a dozen or so patterns. Right, cool. Mm-hmm. So how professional and systematic is software architecture these days in practice i mean i'm a consultant as many other people and i travel around and see architectures and many of them are rather how should i say improvised or or, or how, how well is the profession of software architecture defined these days well i'll approach that question in two ways um first as i go about the world as you do increasingly i find people who have on their business cards the title of software architect or some <laughs> variation thereof. Yep. And most of them actually know what that means, which is a good thing as well, too. And if you ask them, they will say, well, I'm sort of the senior designer. I am the person that makes or at least drives to closure the most important design decision. And I think that's the right answer because architecture, all architecture is design, but not all design is architecture. Mm-hmm. So, The very fact we see such people is an indication that the economics of the marketplace is creating such a role because people or groups of people like that are clearly important in the structuring of a large system. The second way I'll approach it is to observe that every system has an architecture. 
although most architectures are accidental, not intentional. Yes. So what I mean by that is no matter what system you look at, there is an architecture. But for the most part, those architectures, albeit unnamed, tended to grow from the thousands or tens of thousands of small decisions that were made along the way until one day you can wake up and say, oh, I have seen this kind of structure before, and therefore I name it Fubar as opposed to this other architecture over here, which is, you know, MOOF or whatever we might call it. The problem is we don't have the names for these things quite yet. Mm -hmm. Every system does have an architecture, and yet part of the, the immaturity of our field is we don't have really the language to describe these architectures. Mm -hmm. So how widespread is product lines these days? Are, are people doing product lines or, or, I mean, not accidentally, but really planned systematic product lines? Right. In, in fact, it's the economic factors that forces that lead any organization to consider product lines because there's the clear observation that within a particular you know, class of problems, there are going to be, you know, there's going to be a system but many variations of an instance of that system. Uh, the obvious example is I may build something that I internationalize and so want to make available in, uh, in the United States, in Japan, in Sweden, mm -hmm. name it. But another variation you often find is that there's the multi-platform problem. If I'm building a, uh, a video game for which it, it's not cheap to do anymore these days, <laughs> I may wish it to work on the PlayStation 3, on the GameCube, on a PC, on a Macintosh. And so, you know, the question then is, how do I structure such a thing? The, the other economic factor is that you will find economically interesting bits of software that needed to be deployed in, in uh, partial ways and also in ways that can be can be expanded. So if I'm a salesforce.com, for example, not every customer is going to need everything that I offer. Right. So I need to offer a framework that can be extended and also adapted. So it's those three things that lead organizations to consider product lines. The problem is that architecture and an intentional architecture appears to be key to doing a product line right. Yes, exactly. And yet, because these things have often grown up accidentally, Even trying to extract that architecture and finding the fault lines where I can break apart a system is very, very hard indeed. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that most product lines are have been like have grown instead of have been planned. Generally, so uh, the, as as Henry Petrovsky points out, uh, and he actually points out quite a few interesting analogs to yeah. the engineering world. He observes that most interesting systems that are successful tend to grow grow from systems that were successful in the first place, and we, as the engineering process normally goes, one builds upon things that worked and discards things that didn't work. So one rarely ever steps out in a novel domain to say, I'm going to build a product line, but rather one will have built a system that worked in the first place, and then you realize there's economic opportunity in related places, And so I will take that existing system and build a product line around it. A good example of that is uh, Celsius Tech's uh, Ship System 2000, mm -hmm. one of the early ADA projects I was involved with. And Celsius Tech had had built a lot of shipboard uh, uh, control systems. 
and they suddenly realized, oh, you know, there's a lot of similarity. We can actually dominate the marketplace if we invest the resources to build a product line architecture and then more easily build lots of these things. That's exactly what Accenture is doing in its space. Uh, mm-hmm. But it requires you to spend the effort to look to do something that looks non-productive first, i.e. harvesting architecture, yes. yeah. building frameworks, and you don't get the economic benefit until later. So it's something that has to be done with a, like, a foresight, a long-term vision, which is probably tough these days with these uh, focus on quarterly numbers. It is, but it's for organizations that wish to be economically viable in the long term. Yeah. We'll find upper management that, that gets it and so will invest. Yeah. So I've mentioned this systematic or engineering view at software development a couple of times in my questions, and you mentioned it in your answers. So is software development really an engineering discipline or more craftsmanship, or is it an art discipline, or is it something of all of these, or what's your view there? I think it's, it's a mixture, as most every engineering discipline <laughs> is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fascinated by parallels in the civil engineering world as well as in the mechanical and chemical engineering world. And in each of those cases, as it is in software, there is some hard science below the surface. But there is sufficient flexibility in building solutions that balance the forces around you that it lends itself to a degree of creativity. Um, I think that creativity will be found at all levels, at the architectural level, even at the coding level, just as if I'm building a house, my architect can be, you know, very creative, but he's still constrained by the laws of physics and the laws of the building code. Mm -hmm. The individual craftsman who's doing my bookshelves uh, is constrained by the size of the room and my budget, but he or she has still flexibility in terms of You know, how am I actually going to, you know, route the edge of this thing? So there's always a, a balance between the engineering science and the artistic side of it. So what's the key abilities that a software developer must have these days? You know, that very question was asked of me in um, London. I just came back from a couple of weeks there where, among other things, I gave the... Uh, Turing lecture for the British Computer Society, mm-hmm, cool. and I was speaking on the topic of the uh, the promise, the beauty, the limits of software. It was it was really all in in sort of honor of Alan Turing, mm-hmm. who who spoke on all three of those things. And so, an academic asked me the question at the end, which is very similar to your question: What do we need to do to prepare people to really contribute well in the software engineering space? And I gave that person an answer I think they didn't expect. I, I don't think we need, you know, to train people lots and, you know, here's a better way to program or code or reading style like that. But I suggested there, there were really two things. First, it's all about abstraction. And mm-hmm. so, so people who I find that are really successful in this field are good abstractionists and not just ivory tower abstractionists, but they're able to turn those abstractions into, uh, into hard-running code. As an aside, this is, and I know I'm going to offend some people with this, but I always like a little controversy. Doesn't matter. This is why I'm, this is why I'm somewhat annoyed at some of the things going on in the semantic web space, because on the one hand, you know, there are some really fascinating abstractions going on there, but I have to keep reminding people who are working around OWL and RDF and the like 
ultimately you've got to turn this stuff into running code. So I may come up with some brilliant theories for how to represent the semantics of every possible kind of human knowledge, but that's uninteresting to me in the end because we're not writing philosophical software, we're writing software that runs on real machines. So mm -hmm. all comes back to concrete abstraction. The second element that I think is so key for a successful developer is the ability to work in teams. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, this is a software development is a team sport, and that means I have to be able to play well with others. I have to communicate. I have to write well, uh, and not just write you know good code, but also write my text well so yep. that others can understand it. Yep. As the aside I'll offer here is that. I was talking to people, a number of academics, about the kind of courses they have. And I always ask the question among academics, do you have a software reading course? And rarely will I get somebody that says, yes, we do. Because if I want to be an English professor or really understand, you know, a language, I will study the writings of other great authors. Yep. Yep. We don't do that in software. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yep. So, uh, related to that team playing thing, what do you think about huge development teams? Do they work? Is there is there is there tool support? You, you probably you certainly know about uh, what IBM is doing in, in jazz. Um, is is that the way to go, or is there an upper limit to the team size that reasonably works? Well, the I the ideal size is zero because <laughs> you don't have to write any software at all. The pragmatic optimal size is probably somewhere around five plus or minus two or three. And so that means you've got, you know, a reasonable team size of somewhere around uh, three to seven or nine-ish or thereabouts. That's, that seems to be a good, goodly size. However, the economics of many software systems dictate that there simply is not enough work that can be done by that small team to do what's necessary. And so that leads us to larger teams. That leads you to teams of teams. That leads you to the economics of, uh, of outsourcing, uh, near sourcing, i.e. going across the border in the U.S., at least to Canada or something like that. And, and that in itself creates all sorts of interesting problems. There's a delightful book uh, called Distributed Work. Its author escapes me at the moment. Mm -hmm. But it talks about some of the, the social implications of how one divides up work that is distributed temporally and geographically. And that's very much the nature of software development these days. We tend to build systems from small teams that can have a certain, certain mass to them. But once the mass grows, for whatever reason, good or bad, then I have to have more labor, and that means I've got to consider larger teams. Generally, well, in fact, I'll, I'll point to this, because he gives the best answer to it. Go take a look at Jim Copeland's book, Uh, organizational patterns and mm -hmm. agile development, because he's described uh, really a lot of the, the, the structures of hyperproductive teams when you start getting to that size. So, but if if uh, assuming the the productivity of develop of a single developer is limited by something, and assuming the team size is limited, as you just outlined, then there is probably some kind of upper limit to complexity we can we can realize in software. So you probably have heard about the ultra-large uh, systems discussion or, or the ultra-large-scale systems report done by the yeah. uh, SEI folks. Um, what's your view there? I mean, do you have a feeling for the overall limit of complexity that we can or should tackle with software? 
A great question, and the answer I would give will be different from year to year. <laughs> I am enamored of the work of the late uh, economist uh, Herbert Simon, who in his book, The Sciences of the Artificial, talks about the nature of complexity in, uh, in a variety of systems, biological, human-made, etc. And he observes that all complexity forms a hierarchy, and there tends to be a growth of complexity in every interesting system. So how do we tackle complexity? Well, we do that by raising levels of abstraction. Uh, we as humans can only comprehend a certain amount, and there probably is a finite limit to the amount of complexity that a human can, can absorb, although I would dare say it's probably changed over the years because our ability to abstract has changed as well. Mm -hmm. The fact that we see more powerful languages, uh, more powerful middleware, uh, design patterns and architectural patterns, these things allow us to tackle what a previous generation would have considered absolutely insoluble because they could not understand it. And so you see in natural systems and in human systems this interesting cycle of growth of complexity and then collapse and then a continuing growth again. And the collapse is marked by an understanding of the patterns around which I will reorganize a system. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm an evolutionist, and I believe that there are forces in nature that lead naturally to some very complex systems that grow through a variety of evolutionary and other, and, and, and other forces. But that itself, you will see that growth of complexity and its reduction as well, too. And so it is in software. Therefore, I would conclude there probably is no upper limit to the kind of complexes we can build, build, although at any one time there is a limit mm -hmm. what we as humans can understand. And, and I guess the mechanisms, and, and that's what you just said with the patterns, the mechanisms for building these larger and larger systems will change and we might have to give up control at some point and take a more evolutionary approach where the different components that make up the big system aren't all based on the same fundamental architecture, but are rather different, and we define only a very limited set of primitive interactions or something. Well, in fact, you speak of that in the future tense, and I would contend that we yes, have already right. so, yeah. because I have already given up control because I use a <laughs> compiler, Yeah, and, and that itself, you know, is, is uh, yielding control. I give up control when I apply a modeling language, because I will let the platform and the translation from those patterns in my modeling into the code itself be something I don't worry about anymore. Um, you, you are sort of nudging around the question of, of evolutionary algorithms and, and, and emergent behavior yep. in the sense that, yes, there are some systems that I think do have a kind of emergent behavior that's evolving because, especially in web-centric systems, You see us building all these little bitty parts, and all of a sudden we wake up and realize, wow, this thing is bigger than the sum of the parts themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that, that effect, I think, has already taken place to some degree. Right. So you already mentioned in your last uh, answer uh, modeling languages and all that stuff. So there is this current trend towards automating software construction. And, and I'm not saying software development, but rather the software construction from pr uh, primitive pieces or in product lines using UML-based and non-UML-based modeling languages, domain-specific languages, model-driven development, software factories. So what's your opinion there? I'm going to give a bit of theoretical opinion that I never viewed the UML as a language that meant, was meant to be a programming language. Right. 
it's a modeling language in the sense that we use it to reason about, visualize, uh, think about, uh, construct, document systems, but not to run systems. Mm-hmm. Just as it is in in chemical engineering, my the equations I write don't turn into a process that creates those the, the output of those equations. A, a mechanical CAD diagram does not immediately allow me to turn that into a three-dimensional real thing. There's a separation between the models and what they represent and the real system itself. And I think the UML was never meant to be a programming language in that yep. sense. Yep. So that being said, we need these kinds of things. And the UML is certainly not the last such language because of this continuing growth of complexity that we have. There is certainly interest in what people, some people call, especially Microsoft and Jack Greenfield, think of as domain-specific languages. Yep. I've always, you know, never been really excited about the notion because it's not like it's a radical thing. We already do domain-specific languages. Some of them are really interesting and very domain-specific, such as National Instruments LabVIEW, a a wonderful graphical language for building a variety of instruments and electronic devices well-suited to that particular domain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nokia has a specific set of tools for programming uh, its cell phones. And so these kinds of things have already popped up uh, already, the interesting question on the table is, is there a single language sufficient for all of them? The answer is probably no. Are there semantics in common with all of them? Probably no, but probably true for many of those kinds of languages. And it's really the domain themselves that will will develop their own specific domain languages. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm I'm working myself quite a bit in this area, and my experience is that the process of building the language, thinking about the meta model, coming up with a syntax that is useful for the specific domain, the process of building the language is really important. So using off-the-shelf languages doesn't give me these benefits. So if a development team formalizes their architecture, for example, into an architectural description language for their own architecture, from my experience, this can give real big benefits. Yes, and although one has to be careful about one considers the domain, because although I may come up with an optimal language for the domain as I know it today, most interesting systems change their boundaries over time. So yeah. The language I define today may not necessarily be appropriate as I tie this to other kinds of systems. So you have to be careful about that. Yeah, so this leads us to language evolution, and that's certainly something that's <laughs> not very common, commonly yeah. done these days, non-trivial. Very true. So what's your opinion about scripting languages and, and in general maybe the newly raising interest in programming languages? Some people say that there is this pendulum going from left to right, you know, from doing everything with Java and 5 million frameworks as opposed to the other side where we have various different kinds of languages for different tasks like if you think about Ruby or Python or Scala or whatever. In building any interesting web-centric system, you're already dealing with a multitude of languages. And even in the simplest case, you probably got, you know, SQL someplace around there, yep. C++, you've got your Java stuff, probably have some bits of Java, probably have PHP and, you know, maybe Ruby. You've got HTML, you've got XML. Already we deal with a multitude of languages. And, uh, you know, the, the the good news is that um, there's healthy development going on in those spaces. The things like Ruby on Rails, I think, is a very interesting development because it represents that 
there's a certain domain, i.e. a certain kind of web-centric system you build, especially on the fringe, that lends itself to languages and frameworks such as Ruby on Rails, and that's a great thing. Will we see lots more of those? Well, maybe. Uh, this is the time of growth and experimentation in this space, mm -hmm. but it'll also be the time in the coming years, I think, for for collapse and consolidation as yes. people realize, well, some of these work, some of these don't. And we've seen this pendulum swing back and forth. Remember some years ago, well, many years ago, you had uh, a, a huge explosion in language research. Uh, Ada, C++, uh, Java came out of that primordial soup. Mm. A little bit later, you had all the four so-called 4GL languages, and there was you know, growth and collapse of that marketplace. So right now, we're in an interesting growth period and as you know, people get used to them, you then get inhibited by the economic factors of, well, you've got to train people in them, you've got to have tools around them, I've got a legacy in them, and so th th those are the factors that will, over time, inhibit that growth. But right now, it's a fun time. Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, something I'd like to ask you, um, since you're traveling around quite a bit and look at existing systems, especially big systems, have you seen a component marketplace lately? I mean, you know this thing, you know, where we have this component thing and then we have the reusable components that are available on marketplace and everybody buys stuff and just glues them together. Everybody has been dreaming about these things, reuse and stuff. I haven't seen many of them. Have you? Well, it does exist in a modest sense. Uh, I'll show give you two examples. Uh, one comes from the gaming community. I want to build, you know, the next generation wonderful game. And the, the barriers to entry aren't low by any means, but they are helped by the fact that I can go off and buy a physics engine. You know, mm -hmm. Havoc.com will sell it to me. I can go and buy a rendering engine. I might use, you know, the Unreal Life engine. I can buy terrain mapping things and, and all that. So, so there exists within certain domains those kinds of component industries that allow me to bring this stuff together. Another example, which has more of an underground market, uh, was just presented to me with, with talking with some folks at the University of Manchester a few weeks ago. They're doing some fascinating work in the area of uh, bioinformatics, and their focus is upon looking at services for researchers in the genomic area. So, mm -hmm. for example, you know, I'm a genomic researcher, and I've got my own sequencing machine, and so I've got, you know, this, this database of, of various uh, DNA fragments that I can put up on the world. So I pop them up, and, you know, I can maybe provide a web service, a true web service that lets people get into my database. I'm another researcher, and I've been, you know, studying the DNA of some obscure species of fly, and I put up my database. So in that world, you have a lot of small bits that can be assembled together by researchers who are looking across those particular databases, and that's what the University of Manchester folks have done. They basically provided a, a community of, of services that they manage that allow people, other researchers, to dive into these things. The interesting thing about the problem they described to me is that Given that they have no control over those services, services, you know, change their interfaces on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. they sometimes are there, sometimes they aren't. And so building systems that work against that very unreliable set of other services is quite challenging. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a marketplace for services that exist in that domain. 
So, so if I summarize, then what you just said is that there are two kinds of reusable things. One is like what you typically call middleware platforms, like the gaming engine and, and some other stuff, like for yep. example the, the DDS in, in the in the I don't know ship uh, board systems world. Yep. And the other thing would be not really components that you kind of use in the sense of installing them, but rather services that are available on the web, which you then yep. use by calling them software as a service wise. Yes, and there's a third kind of reuse, which is where patterns fit in. Right. Because there are more intangible things, and there's not, an interest, there's not really an economic model for them. But nonetheless, they are things that people will imprint upon their systems or refactor to. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think, I think your conclusion is absolutely a correct one, that there are those, adding the patterns bit, there are those three kinds of models of components that exist out there. Mm-hmm. So, how important is object orientation today? I mean, um, if 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 you look at um, component-based systems, it doesn't really matter what the implementation language is, you know, as long as they speak XML or whatever. And yeah. and on the other side, there is things like aspect orientation. Um, so, what's your take on OO? Well, let, let me separate the issue of aspects for a moment because I have some okay. particular feelings about that. Right. But OO stuff, I think, is part of the atmosphere in which developers breathe these days. That's a good If you yeah. strip away all the details of anything object-oriented, we're simply talking about a particular way of doing abstractions that unites some form of data with some form of, of operation. That's the essence of it, mm-hmm. and that's how we build our abstraction. And that notion of thinking about the world pervades every one of the technologies you describe. I mean, how do I write a reasonable bit of XML? Well, I've got to do some thinking about what's the structure and the semantics of the data that I'm talking about, and that's how I'll group things. There's no operations there, but you know, clearly I'm going to use that in some way, and that will drive the shape of those abstractions. This is why I said earlier that abstraction, I think, is so important as a skill yeah. because one needs to have the full set of tools in your bag to know how to do procedural abstractions as well as object-oriented abstractions, and every good developer needs to have that. Now, let's talk about aspects. <laughs> a few years ago, I mean, I was really enamored of Gregor Casale's work and, and others in that space, mm-hmm. and I really thought that aspects were going to make a fundamental difference because from an architectural perspective, you always do see these cross-cutting concerns. Yep these things that we can name that touch many different parts of our code. So the fact that it is a nameable thing tells me there's something very, very real there. Mm-hmm. However, the, the early work that Gregor and others did, I thought was utterly fascinating, but my personal opinion is that community's kind of gotten in a rut and has been dealing with things at down at the weeds. So they're dealing with with programming language issues, whereas I think the real economic value of aspects is more at the architectural and subsystem <laughs> level. And that, yeah. I haven't really seen a lot of interesting work there. The, the work yeah. that Charles Simone is doing at Intentional, I mean, there's there's great debate of whether it's, you know, is it aspect-oriented, is it not? Well, it's, I, I don't care what you call it. doesn't really it. matter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but he's still talking about building these very powerful meta-models and intermediate representations of things to which I can then do some really powerful transformations that cut across the individual lines of code. The fundamental problem, I think, is that we as an industry, for better or worse, have this historical tie to textual programming languages. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that itself is a constraining factor. It looks you know, obvious, yeah. and it doesn't look like there's any alternatives. But what the aspect folks are telling us, 
And what, what Charles is telling us is, no, there's a very different way of looking at the world, but unfortunately we are constrained by the history of our business. Yeah, it's it's really cool that you say this because it's kind of exactly my view too that architectural uh, the AOP on or AO on architectural level is much more useful than in the nitty gritty programming language details and also being able to have aspect oriented models where you start with weaving models and then maybe generate code from them or doing things that Charles does. That, from my point of view, this is also the the, the sweet spot. Right. In my my experience also is biased in that having you know been with Rational since the beginning. We use this thing called Diana, the descriptive intermediate attributed notation for notion notation for ADA. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about it is that when we built our machine, the R1000, you didn't really have source code that the representation of the things you created were Di were Diana files, and mm -hmm. Diana is effectively a decorated parse tree. Yep, yep. As a result, you could do some incredibly powerful transformations. And the only time you ever saw the source code is, in effect, a pretty printing of parts yes. of the Diana tree. Yeah. And, and that appears to be the path that I think is, is really, really powerful. It's, it's, not, you know, it's similar to where Charles has been headed in that we're not longer dealing with code as the artifact, but there's something more rich as the yes. artifact that we yes. manipulate. And, and then if you do that, aspects are kind of natural. They aren't really something that you have to explicitly distinguish. Absolutely. Aspects become... Very, very easy. Yep. And I think what's tripped the aspect oriented community is they have been bogged down by having to deal with working in the context of existing textual languages. Right, that's, right. That's a really a damning constraint. Yep. Yep. So if you had a wish for software development in general, what would that be for the future? Well, hmm, that's <laughs> a great question. Yeah, kind um, of open ended. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, how would I answer that one? Yeah. I occasionally get questions that stump me, and you've given me a question that stumps me. I'm really bad at predicting the future. I've, I've realized that's the case because I, I can predict the future way out, and it won't matter because I'll be dead by then. <laughs> yeah. No one will be able to say, well, he was wrong. But if I was right, people would say, wow, he was he was really ahead of his time. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter. And it's it's possible to predict some things in the short term, but what I find more interesting are what are the, the forces that lead us to a particular trajectory. And I think the interesting forces are uh, software is getting more complex through a variety of economic and business and just natural reasons. Um, software development always has been, it is, and will remain fundamentally hard. So frankly, in answer to your question, I don't see anything on the horizon that's going to make Uh, dealing with the essential complexity, as Fred Brooks speaks of it, uh, that will make things, you know, much easier. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, what do I hope the most? Well, this is why I'm working in a couple of areas, not just in the architecture area, but I'm also spending time dealing with collaboration. What can one do to mm -hmm. build collaborative development environments? And I think both of those areas, and it's a particularly biased answer because this is what I'm doing, those are the areas where, where I hope we'll see some breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so did I forget to ask something you wanted to say in this interview? Now's your no, chance. I think you, you asked some great questions. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciated your, your feedback on and the follow-up on the questions. It was absolutely wonderful. So, no, I can't think of a thing. Okay, great. Then thank you very much for being on the show, for taking the time. And, um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Take care.
Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.